Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'm grateful to have you on, taking time out of your busy day or evening or night to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to please subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. Now, coming up on this special Black History Month edition of Historically Speaking Sports, we're going to be talking to Scott Kinville of Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast, as we will discuss the history and legacy of black players in the National Hockey League, starting with the Jackie Robinson at NHL, Willie O'Ree of the Boston Bruins, and going through stars like Grant Fuhrer, Tony McKegney of the 1980s and 90s, to the more recent standouts like P.K. Subban and Jerome McGinley, and also all of the current black National Hockey League stars. Later on in the show, we're going to be sending a solemn shout out to former all-star catcher and Major League Baseball color analyst Tim McCarver, who died at the age of 81 this past week. And of course, our memorable, our top five memorable sports moments from this week, which includes the Dodgers moving into a temporary home in Southern California, the most memorable night in the short history of the New Orleans Jazz, and since we talked about hockey, the most memorable as well as the most important hockey game in American history. They gave us one of the most unforgettable calls in sports history. All that and more coming up. So sit back, pump up the volume because you're going down sports memory memory lane with the top down one historically speaking sports podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories, and Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today! Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello and welcome back to this special Black History Month edition of Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, coming to you from suburban Atlanta. And tonight 
We're joined by a fellow Sports History Network colleague. Uh, tonight is Scott Kenville, whose podcast, Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey, po- hockey history podcast, chronicles the history of hockey here on the network. And tonight we have him on to talk about and celebrate the sport of hockey. And more specifically, the influence and notable accomplishments of black hockey players throughout history in the NHL, both past and present, in not only the NHL, but in other leagues such as the World Hockey Association and other minor leagues around the country. So, Scott, once again, welcome back to the show, my man. Dana, thank you for having me on. It's always a blast coming on to talk some sports history with you. I, I love doing this. And you know what? We should do this more often. Um, I absolutely, man. Look, you know, the invitation to you to come on is always open. You could always come on and talk to you. And I'm still looking forward to coming on, on your show once upon a time to talk about my very limited, you know, my very limited knowledge of hockey history, but I'm always willing to learn. And I learned so much uh, researching this topic we're going to be talking about tonight, because, you know, as you saw in the introduction, you heard in the introduction, we're going to be talking about uh black hockey players in the nhl now believe it or not folks there are way more hot black hockey players in the nhl than one may even realize um and we're going to start off by talking about some of the more current players of the nhl and their contributions and the teams that they're playing for uh right now so scott who are some of the bigger stars in the nhl right now that are black all right, so you know what? Let's start off with some forwards, Dana. Uh, right now, uh, I'm going to go with Evander Kane from the Edmonton Oilers. Um, Evander, you know, he, everybody knows he's had his, his problems off the ice, but I tell you what, on the ice, you can't take it away at all from the guy. He's a dynamo when he's out there. Uh, in his career, he's got 836 games played. He scored 200, uh, 295 goals, 269 assists for 564 points, and he's also got 1,081 penalty minutes. So what that means is he is one rough customer. You do not mess with Evander Kane. Uh, very, very effective when he's out on the ice. Uh, his best season was with the San Jose Sharks in 2018-19, where he scored 30 goals, 26 assists, and 56 points. He also had 153 penalty minutes that season. So like I said, you don't mess with Evander Kane. Uh, he's a former first-round pick, and like I said, when he's out on that ice, he makes his team better. Yeah, you know, is he more of a more of a scoring first type of forward? Because forwards in, in hockey are basically the the goal scorers more than likely. They're the ones who who basically the the, the position is basically explains that they're forward. They're the, they're the offensive stars of the team. But when you hear a guy that has a lot of penalty minutes, you expect him to be a defenseman most of the time. You know, is that pretty much a a a, a uh, okay assessment for guys that get a lot of penalty minutes being more, more like defensemen or types, you know, over the years. Well, you know, with, with Evander Kane's game, it's very, it's very physical. He's very physical along the boards and he's really what they call a prototypical power forward, which okay. means he's, a, he's a guy that's, he's not going to be like Connor McDavid, right? He's not going to be the, the video game, you know, Oh my God, did you see that spinorama? He just did. Evander right. Kane is basically going to drive to your net and he's going to be a nightmare in front of your net which, again, lends to his physicality in his game. Uh, but that's where he, his bread and butter, right there within, you know, down below the circles, along the boards, and getting that puck in the back of the net. 
Now, when you say somebody that, that that's right there, a power forward, you, you pretty, it's a lot like hockey's version of posting somebody up in the low post in basketball, where you're basically right in front of the goal and you're basically getting rebounds. And it's the same essential thing, but on ice and hockey, when you're right there in front of the goalkeeper, you're slashing and everything, trying to get the puck into the crease and in, into the goal past the goalkeeper. That's what a power forward normally does. You know, exactly. am I correct in, in that assessment? Well, let me put it to you this way. In sports history context, since we're talking about basketball, think Charles Oakley. Wow, there you go. Okay, that, that's there more it is. apt description. You know, more of a Charles Oakley type. Okay, very. I like that. I like that comparison. All right. All right. <laughs> Who else you got? Yeah. So, let's see. We got Anthony Duclair, who is a left winger for the Florida Panthers. Uh, he's currently injured, but uh, I'll tell you when he, again, he's one of those guys, <clears throat> when he's on the ice, extremely effective. And he's actually one of those, what they call late bloomers. Right. So in the beginning of his career, he, he was kind of trying to find his footing, find his way. And these past few seasons, Dana, he has just gone off the charts with his offense. So last season, he had 31 goals, 21 or 27 assists for 58 points on a very high powered Florida Panthers team. Uh, again, it's a shame that he's hurt right now. But right. I'll tell you, when he gets back, now his game is a little bit opposite of what Evander Kane's is, right? We talked about Evander Kane being the power forward. Anthony DeClaire depends on speed and a wicked wrist shot. A laser of a wrist shot, as a matter of fact. So he is essentially, like I don't want to say the opposite of Evander Kane, but it sort of is, right? Because he plays a little bit of a different game. But obviously, what I just told you, it's just as effective. Okay, so he's more more along the lines of an open eyes type of one-timer type of a shooter from like that side, almost, almost like a Steph Curry, like maybe, you know, yeah. or maybe yeah. a little bit of a stretch there. Well, I mean, that's sort of, sort of, right. I mean, you're, you're on the right track. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, I, I always kind of think of Steph Curry as like the three pointer guy. Right. I, I tend to think of Anthony DeClaire as the sniper from within. Right. Okay. So, okay. So, so, that's, lot, that's, so it does a lot. So you say he does like a lot of wrist shots, a lot of yes, you know, you know, kind of like moving the moving moving well without the puck, and then gets into him in the in the right position, and then it slaps it home. Absolutely, can stick handle through the defense. You know, a, a lot more of a of a like a stick handling shooting type of game. Okay, Whereas, like I said, with the Vander Kane, he's basically going to shove the puck down your throat. Is basically <laughs> if you can think of it that way, right? So right. <laughs> <laughs> So we had two forwards so far that you've talked about, you know, uh, who are some of them, you know, who are some others, you know, that, 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 okay. you've, talked, that you've, that you've noticed that are becoming, make coming that are becoming stars in the NHL, you know? So here's one for you. And you're going to, this guy I think is going to be a big star at some point. Uh, it's Quentin Byfield from the Los Angeles Kings. Uh, he was He's in the right city two. in LA. He's in the right city. That's right. You ain't kidding, right? So <laughs> he was selected number two overall in the 2020 NHL draft. Um, unfortunately for Quinn, he got hurt early in the season last year, which really kind of set him back a little bit. But this season, and again, he got hurt again this season, which, you know, again, that happens in the NHL. It happens with any sport, right? I mean, you're right. going to have injuries. But now that he's fully healthy and he got some experience down in the AHL, which actually did him a world of good because it got him used to the professional game. So in hockey, they have what they call the junior leagues, right? Okay. Which is sort of the equivalent of like college, you know, that kind of thing. And he dominated in junior hockey, dominated, right? Okay. But now you're going, you're, you're talking about going to professional hockey. Obviously, you're going to a different level, like with any sport, right? It's like from going from the minors in baseball up to the majors, 
Uh, think of it as college, going to the NBA, that kind of thing, right? Right. So getting that experience in the AHL did him a world of good because it got him used to the professional game because the professional game, as in any other sport, it's, it's a longer season. It's more of a grind. Well, now that Quentin Byfield is starting to get used to that, his potential is really starting to flash through. Now, he's listed as a center, which is what the Kings are ultimately thinking that he's going to be a number one center at some point down the road. Uh, right now, they still have Anze Kopitar there, who is going to be a surefire Hall of Famer when he decides to retire. And what the Kings did was they put Byfield on Kopitar's line. So he's playing a wing right now with Kopitar, okay. which is tremendous for him to be able to learn from a future Hall of Famer like that. Yeah, that's that, that's awesome. I mean, when you talk about a center uh, in, in hockey positioning, uh, he's more along the lines of something of, of maybe like a control tower or a point guard type of deal. Yeah, he's you know, he's controlling the action. He's controlling the offense and, and things of that nature. So he's pretty much going to be the focal point of the Kings offense, you know, whenever he, whenever Kopitar decides to retire and whenever, you know, they, they hand over the keys to the kingdom, so to speak in Los exactly. Angeles, um, and, and to have him lead, lead the Kings. I mean, I think, I mean, and, and of course the Kings is the, is the hockey team in LA. I mean, with all due respect to Anaheim, but that's Anaheim. It's the Kings. That's right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> ask anybody in LA, they'll tell you too, right? <laughs> you know, exactly. And, um, even though I'm way out in Atlanta, I can just about assume that. Um, but yeah, that's what a center does, basically, is to pretty much run the offense. And you, it's, and this, and it's this, this new kid for the Kings that's going to replace Kopitar is going to be is going to fill that role. Now we've talked about too far. We're talking about the center. Now we're going to talk about you know, some defensemen. Who are some of the some some of the really great young defensemen that are in the league right now? All right, so I'm going to start with Seth Jones from the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, Seth has 702 games played in his, his career already. He's got 76 goals, 285 assists for 361 points, which is tremendous for a defenseman. Because remember, defensemen obviously don't score as much as the forwards because they're too busy trying to keep the puck out of the net, right? So, <laughs> uh, anyways, his best season offensively was when he was with the Columbus Blue Jackets. That was 27 and 18, uh, 16 goals, 41 assists for 57 points. Uh, he's been an all star. Uh, playing in Chicago right now, Chicago's a team that's in a rebuild. So right. he's in kind of a tough spot where his team isn't quite as good, but he's making the best of the, uh, I, I guess I'll say a bad situation. The Hawks will be better at some point because they're getting a lot of draft right. picks now, a lot of young players coming in. But like I said, he's a, he's the anchor of their defense. Uh, I think he's about 28 years old, I believe. So he's going to be in this league for some time to come. Okay, and playing for the Chicago Blackhawks, one of the original six teams, um, long-time hockey tradition, long-time hockey town, playing at the Madhouse on Madison. Um, it was – in that team, especially with the, with those original six teams, especially like the, the, the Blackhawks, who's been known throughout history of having really rough and tumble, really hardcore physical defensemen as a part of that great uh, – great lineage of Chicago Blackhawk players. And he, I'm sure he's going to fit right into that mold. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know what? The, the Hawks are rebranding themselves more or less as a, as a speedier team, right? Okay. They want to bring in more skill, but you know what? You still need players like that on a team. You can't have all, you know, the, the, the fast lightning guy, you know, fast lightning quick and all that, but you got no grit. That's not hockey. You got to have some grit back there. And Seth Jones does provide that for them. Especially if you're if you're a playoff team, and I could only assume that when if it's anything like the NBA, 
where when the playoffs start, the game sort of slows down. It becomes more of a physical game. Is that the same thing? Do you see the same thing in hockey when postseason comes around? That is exactly right, Dana. Exactly right. You know, those those shifts start getting a little bit shorter because everybody's just putting 120% in. Uh, the physicality goes way up in the playoffs because obviously no, nobody wants to make the mistake, right? Nobody wants to get burned. Nobody wants anything. So everybody's playing really close to the chest in the playoffs, just like with any other sport. And that's exactly why you need somebody back there who's going to be tough, clear the front of that net out, but can also get some offense for your team from the blue line. All right. And then, I mean, who's another another big time defenseman that you see becoming a star in this league or, or is our, at least a still, a still a star in the league. All right. So I got two more for you here. Okay. Uh, Dar- Darnell nurse from the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, Darnell's got 534 games played overall in his career. He's got 60 goals, 160 assists for 220 points. His best season was in 2018, 19 when he had 10 goals, 31 assists and 41 points. Same mold is like a Seth Jones, right? Very, very physical player from the, from the blue line. Uh, can provide some offense for you when needed. Uh, and you know what? Darnell is under a lot of pressure defensively a lot because I will tell you that the Edmonton Oilers don't play a lot of defense. <laughs> they are very much so what they are calling it, like a fire wagon type of hockey team where it's just go, go, go. They want to score all the time. You know, they're content to win games eight to seven, you know, as long as they win, of course. Right. Uh, so they don't put a lot of emphasis on defense, which puts a lot of pressure on their defensemen. But uh, I tell you, they had enough faith in them to sign into an eight-year contract extension. So That'll tell you something right there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we with when you say that that they're like a um, a team that like to run and gun. Was that a lot like the Edmonton Oilers teams doing the '80s doing their dynasty? Yes, it's exactly what that was like, Dana. Just forget about defense. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> Let's just score as many goals as we can. And well, you know what? If we give up eight, so long as we score nine, that's good with us too. You know. Yeah, and I've always wondered uh, that. I've always wondered that too, because whenever you had like, like, I think that you know those those teams out there in Western Canada, you know, with the Edmonton Oilers and I and the the Calgary Flames and the Vancouver Canucks, they're more of a running gun style of outfit most of the time. At least that's what I've seen. You know, or, or I've kind of kind of identify with when I think of Western hockey, Western Canada hockey. I think of running gun that type of that yes. type of deal. Exactly. And, you know, here's another little interesting fact about Darnell Nurse. Do you know who his uncle is? Is it Donovan McNabb? Oh, that's right. That's right. It is Donovan McNabb. That's right. So it's it's also very interesting. uh, You know, I I always thought that was pretty cool. You know, imagine having having Donovan McNabb for your uncle. That's pretty. And is is he related to there was a University of Connecticut women's basketball player, Kia Nurse. I I think that's his sister. Okay. So that's a pretty athletic family. You I know, would say yeah. so. Yeah. If you have an uncle that <laughs> Donovan McNabb and you're playing in the NHL and your sister played for the University of Connecticut's women's basketball team, which says a lot, uh, that's obviously some very, very good athletic genes going on in that family. <laughs> oh, yes. No <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> so who's another defenseman that you that, that, that you said you had two – I defenseman got, yep. that, that that was who's the other one that you so that was Darnell and then here's another one for you it's Keandre Miller from the uh from the New York Rangers uh this kid is going to be a star in this league at some point fast size physicality so far this season <clears throat> excuse me in 56 games played he's got six goals and 24 assists for 30 points which is really good for a very young defenseman 
uh, again, he's 23 years old. So there's only very young. Oh yeah. He can only go up. I mean, that's, that's going to be, and what's, what helps him too is that the Rangers actually have a a very good team around them to be able to, um, I don't want to say protect him, but all the pressure isn't on him right now. So that's really going to actually help his growth because, you know, they're not going to throw all the responsibility on him right off the bat. So it's going to give him time to develop, time to grow his game, which is, I'm telling you, it's only going to get better. All right. Okay. So, I mean, we talked about current players and, you know, and a lot of the players are pretty much continuing the legacy of, of black players in the National Hockey League, but they had to have a foundation. And some of the players that we're going to be talking about right now are retired players. And some of them, if I'm not mistaken, if some of the, the first one I want to talk about is not only in the Hall of Fame, but the first black player to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, as well as the first black player to win a Stanley Cup. And he won a lot of them. And we're talking about Grant Fuhrer of the Edmonton Oilers, who played goaltender, who Wayne Gretzky considered the greatest goaltender of all time. Okay, talk about his style. And do you agree with, with Gretzky's assessment that he is the greatest goaltender ever? You know, I tell you, I, I think he's right up there because I always kind of wondered what it would have been like for Grant Fuhrer if he played on a team that cared about defense, right? Because right. <laughs> we just talked about it. He was he was smack dab in the middle of that fire wagon hockey theory or era of hockey. So, um, and I, I'll tell you something else, too. When I was growing up, Grant Fuhrer was my favorite goaltender because I was an Edmonton Oilers fan until they traded Gretzky to L.A., and I've been an L.A. Kings fan since. Okay. Uh, but... <laughs> Grant Fuhrer, first real athletic goaltender. Okay. Right. So before Fuhrer came along, it was a lot of the, the stand-up goaltending type where, you know, the goalie just kind of moves side to side on their feet. You know, you hear the kick save and a beauty where they're doing, you know, kicking from their feet and all that. Grant Fuhrer was athletic. He would make saves. I mean, he looked like a, the rubber band man out there making some saves sometimes. <laughs> it was unbelievable, right? So him and Patrick Waugh really kind of developed that butterfly style that you see nowadays. Uh, but Grant Fuhrer brought athleticism to the position, which he was an unbelievably talented goaltender. Uh, you said Stanley Cup winner. You're darn right. He had four Stanley Cups with the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, and here's a couple other things. He was a two-time All-Star. He won the Vezina Trophy in the 1987-88 season. The Vezina Trophy goes to the NHL's best goaltender. Okay. Now, in that season, that was the, by the way, that was the final cup that Gretzky won at Edmonton along with Fuhrer. Okay? That season... He played 75 out of 80 games, which is unheard of for a goaltender. Wow. Right? If you, you look at goaltenders nowadays, and if they play 65, they're saying, oh, my God, he's played so much. <laughs> he, played, he, he didn't play in five games for the Oilers that season. And, again, this is an era where those goalies were facing rubber left and right because nobody was playing defense. Right. right. So to play that many games and then, you, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that, right? A few years later, he did it again with St. Louis when he was with the Blues. In 1995-96, get this, he played 79 out of 82 games. Wow. Which is unreal, right? I mean, that's that's unbelievable to be able to hold up for that long. And don't forget, right, with this 1987-88 season, the Oilers won the Cup, so they played four playoff rounds after that. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, the Blues went deep in in that 96 season. They went deep in the playoffs. They they did the the conference finals. So (laughs) guess what? The man played a lot of hockey and he played it very well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when when you talk about goalies and you talk about 
the, the butterfly that they to describe the butterfly and I'm into to guys to the guys that are listening that are not familiar with it. Just looking at it just looks painful because yeah, you know, because I I I was a, I was a, once upon a time in a past life I was I was a baseball catcher and you know and I see the butterfly and I'm like. How do they have any ligaments left in their knees, you know, when they do that, you know? So just sort of describe that for, you know, for those, for for guys out there. So if you think of it as like gymnastics on ice, right? Uh, Again, like I said, before guys like Grant Fuhrer came along, they were, the goalies were all standing up. They very rarely dropped down to their knees. And if they did, it was just to cover the puck. With guys like Fuhrer, they were now, they were dropping down and what they were doing, and and I'm kind of trying to just, this is like we don't have the video feed and thank god because you know this could get really, really ugly if i tried it <laughs> so it involves a lot of being on the ice and using your legs and your entire body to stretch out to cover as much of the net as you can which was a big departure from the the, the style of old but right. it's so much more effective but again it was guys like grant fear too is why you see athletic goalies the way they are nowadays because back then you know the goalies were you know they, they were athletes don't get me wrong Right, mm-hmm. but they were nowhere near what they are nowadays, and it was because of guys like Grant Fuhrer that re- revolutionized the position, really, to turn it into what we see today. Exactly, you know, you talk about Grant Fuhrer and his success, and obviously, he was a big influence on a lot of not only players but also goalies with his technique, with his athleticism, and stuff like that. And he was a major, even though the Oilers at during the time was a offensive juggernaut, of course, with Gretzky and Messier and those guys. Um, it all had to depend on him to stop the puck when he needed to. And yeah. uh, just let you know, with the high scoring Edmonton Oilers in the mid, in the early, in the mid eighties, you know, they were a force to be reckoned with offensively, but you also had Grant Fear behind them. Right. Exactly. And you know what? And I think, you know, subconsciously as a team that to them, gave them the confidence to take those offensive chances, right? Right. Because you know you got Grant Fuhrer backing you up. <laughs> so if you if you know you got a guy that's going into the Hall of Fame at some point like he did, well, you know what, maybe I will take this chance because I got Grant Fuhrer in my net. So if if the, go- the other guy gets in on a breakaway, most likely Grant's going to stop him anyway. So what's the difference? <laughs> I'm no, sure their coaching staff didn't like to see that a lot, but, you know, <laughs> hey, what, why not, right? <laughs> Whatever works. Now, another player that was – that played a bulk of his career in that area of Canada, in Western Canada, played for Calgary, was, but this guy was a goal-scoring phenomenon. And unfortunately, not too many people know him down stateside, which is a shame because this kid was unbelievable. We're talking about Jerome McGinley for the Calgary Flames. Uh, one of probably the most prolific black college, black hockey player ever by far, but at the same time, he was one of the most prolific scorers in, in NHL history, but not a lot of people know about him. Tell, tell us about him, uh, uh, Jerome McGinley of the Flames. Jerome McGinley was an incredible hockey player, the complete package. You could do anything you wanted, speed, skill, physicality. He can knock you on your butt. He'd be no, no, no problem there. Uh, and you're right, Dana, that, you know, not a lot of people hear about him down here. You know, I think part of that playing in Calgary for most of his career because – Unfortunately, sometimes with, when players play a lot of their time in Canada, sometimes it doesn't always, you know, filter down as much to the States. It's, you know, nobody's fault. It's just the way it is, I guess. Even though you could say that the NHL could market their players a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. That's definitely for sure. 
But anyways, that notwithstanding, uh, career stats, you're right, incredible. 1,554 games played in the league, which is a extremely, yeah, like a 20-year career. Uh, 625 goals, 675 assists for 1,300 points. He had 1,040 penalty minutes. So, like we said, a very tough customer indeed. Yes. Uh, he was the Art Ross Trophy winner in 20, or, I'm sorry, 2001-02. Art Ross Trophy winner goes to the guy who won, had the most points in the league. Most points, yes. Uh, Rocket Richard Trophy, he won that twice. That goes to the guy who's got the most goals in the league. Uh, he won the Marc Messier Leadership Award in twenty or 2008-09. He retired in 2017, and he is indeed in the Hockey Hall of Fame well-deserved. And, uh, that's, and also he's – oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say he played most of his career in Calgary, like you said. Uh, he was a first-round draft pick of the Dallas Stars, and they foolishly traded him. <laughs> one of, boy, wow. one of those, you know, boy, I wish I had that one back, you know? Yeah. And that, that could be also a great what would have been as far as, like, his notoriety here in the States had he stayed in Dallas. You yeah, know, yeah, he would have been – I think that I think that would have been a big feather in his cap to be a well-known player here in the States had he stayed in Dallas, but he went up to Calgary, which is a great hockey city, but it's oh, a yes. small market team. It's a very small market, you know, for – North America, not much Absolutely. less, you know, but it's a small market for North America, but he shined out there. Not only all of the accomplishments that he's had, he also has one major accomplishment. He's the first black hockey player to win a gold medal in the Olympics. Yes, that's you right. Know, for that's for right. Team, team Canada, Canada. in the, in, I think, was it the 2000, was it the 2012 Olympics? It was the one in Vancouver. So it was, it was in, in 2010. That's right. Yes. 2010. Yeah. Yes, he was, was the first black hockey player to win a gold medal in the Olympics. Or the Canadians broke the Americans' hearts. <laughs> That's right. I remember that. That's right. But I was rooting for Jerome Aguilar to get a yes. gold medal. I really, yes, really absolutely. was. But then, but then that Canadian team was just so loaded. You know, yeah, that, I mean, that was an NHL all-star team, you know. Yeah. When you've got Hall of Famers that are on the fourth line, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Come on. What are we doing here? Yeah. But, I mean, you know, you talk about his, you know, Jerome McGinley's athleticism as well as his overall toughness and, and, and skating ability. You know, when you think, when you, somebody says the name Jerome McGinley, what is the thing that you think of as a fan? I think. What I think of, you know how we talked about Evander Kane being the, the power forward of today? Yeah. Jerome McGinley was the ultimate power forward, along the lines of like a Gordy Howe. Okay. That good. Same type of game, same style, right? Gordy obviously had a few more, you know, a little bit bigger on the on the number side, but he also played 26 seasons. So Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah that kind of helps if you play that long. <laughs> That's, yeah. But that same style, right, that just bull right through you, do whatever you got to do to win, uh, skill off the charts, a wrist shot. For the, the, his wrist shot, Dana, was like a laser. It, it really was. And he could pick the corner anywhere he wanted to go. And to be able to do it, what he did was, was in traffic, too. What I mean by in traffic, you know, when guys drive to the net and there's a lot of players around and there's not much room to move, when they say you're like stick handling in a phone booth, it's that same type of thing. And to be able to get that shot off in there, it takes a special type of skill, and I'm going to tell you something. Jerome McGinley had that off the charts. I remember one time, I think it was doing one NHL All-Star Game skills competition, is when I really first saw him. I had heard about him, but i never really seen him. And I remember seeing him in a skills competition, I believe, and how they would get shots 
and they would just do wrist shots, just pass mm-hmm. like a simulated goalie, but they would have to hit like targets in the, the targets. The, yep. Yeah. First of all, being on skates and having the ability to do that to me is beyond anything that I could even remotely athletically comprehend of how <laughs> that amazing that is to be that accurate. But it just seemed like for him, it was almost like for some people breathing or walking. It was just so simple to him, it seemed like. It did. It was it was like effortless, right? Even though obviously it wasn't to him, he just made it look so easy. And and like I said, the, the accuracy with that shot it was what really was the, the stunning thing about him. You know, was he a fast skater? Yeah, he was a fast skater, but there was faster skaters, mm-hmm. right? Very tough customer. There was a lot of tough customers in the league. But I'll tell you, that shot was second to none. And the reason that was so good, I mean, he could, Danny, he could take, take like a six-inch square and just put the puck right through it. I mean, there was just no no way Van Doors or butts about it. Wow. Yeah. Now, we're talking about black hockey players and, and some of the really greats, but all of this is generated, all of this has an origin. And the origin, of course, goes all the way back to the 1950s. And we're talking about Willie O'Ree, who broke in, became the first black player to break into the NHL in 1958 with the Boston Bruins. And, you know, uh, he's noted as the Jackie Robinson of the National Hockey League. Uh, you talk about him and talk about his career. So Willie O'Ree, like you said, in 1957-58 season, became the first black player to play in the NHL uh, with the Boston Bruins. Uh, he played a couple games in that season. And then he came back and he played another season in 1960-61. Uh, That's the weird thing, too, about like the NHL. When you're talking about their seasons, you have to like, use two years. <laughs> yeah, like the NBA. The NBA is the same way, right? Yeah, it's like, ah, it screws me up sometimes. But anyways, uh, but no, Willie was a tremendous, tremendous ambassador for the sport. He always has been. Uh, just a, a he, as a player, you know, what? He, he was one of those guys who was, you want those grit guys on your team like we talked about before, right? Willie was the guy that went into the corners, dug the puck out, knocked somebody on their butt if he had to. Yeah, no problem, right? Um, didn't score a lot of goals, but that's okay because you don't need a, a team full of goal scorers, right? You got to have team of guys what they call role players mm-hmm. who are going to play that and, and get that puck for those guys and grind them down and be a team leader in that way, which Willie was. Um, played a lot in the minor leagues, so he went down and he played in the Western Hockey League. He played in the American Hockey League. Uh, bounced around a little bit there. Um, you know, unfortunate that he didn't get his due until 2018 going into the Hall of Fame. Right. It, it really is. You know, that was, to me, that, that's really where the, where the league dropped the ball because yeah. of, of what he accomplished was, was incredible, especially at that time. Right. Know? And I was thinking of while I was doing this research, and I thought it was very interesting that Boston could have been the city of first when it came down to black athletes because – Willie O'Ree was the first black NHL player with the Bruins. The Celtics had the first black player with uh, Chuck Cooper. They could have had the first black baseball player in Boston because they were in line a couple of months before the Dodgers got Jackie Robinson to get a black player, but they backed out at the last minute. So that could have been a very interesting footnote had it happened that Boston could have been the – you know, the city of first, so to speak, for black athletes in pro, in pro sports in North America. I thought that was, you know, just thinking about that, just one of the things that crossed my mind while I was, you know, doing my research. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, think about this, too. When Willie broke in, there was only six teams in the NHL. Right. It's not like it's not like today where you got thirty two games or thirty two teams because the league didn't expand until nineteen sixty seven. They brought six more teams in after that. So to get a roster spot at that time in the NHL was extremely difficult because there's only so many spots to go around to begin with. Right. You had six teams and five, and you have five spots on it, five positions, and you pretty much have like three, maybe four different lines or four different lot, you know, spots or whatever, or, right. or strings or whatever you would call it in hockey. Um, there's only so many positions to go around. There's a very, very limited number, especially with just six teams. Exactly. And you got to remember too, back then there was no such thing as like a guaranteed contract or anything like that. So a lot of players, they, you know, it didn't matter if they had a broken hand, they didn't care. They weren't giving up their spot in the lineup because there was no guarantee you were going to be back. Right. So, you know, it's not like today where, you know, you have like the, the injured reserve, stuff like that. Back then, th- that was really rare. I mean, unless it was an absolute superstar player that, you know, oh, well, we'll, we'll stash him over here because we don't want to lose him. Back then, I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of them, especially when you're talking about like third, fourth liners, say second, third pairing defensemen, uh, they were like, huh, sorry about your luck, but there's somebody else out in the minor leagues who wants your job and they'll take it. So, these guys really, really fought to keep their spots, which made it that much more difficult to get into the league. Okay, so we talked about Willie. Who are some other notable black players from from back in the day, so to speak, that I think that our that we should be reminded of, or we should be we should know about maybe more in detail? Okay, so before I go to the defenseman, there are just a, there's a couple more forwards I wanted to mention. Uh, this guy, this next guy, I'm going to talk about to me, was always one of the most underrated players in the league. Uh, it was Tony McKegney. So he played in the 80s. That Once again, that the, to me, honestly, was the funnest era of hockey ever. But that's just me. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a lot of yeah. sports, if you really think about it. The, the sports yeah, in right? the 80s just seemed like it was just better. The NFL was better. The NBA, for sure, was better. You yeah, know? And the NHL right. was right up there, you know, with – you know, with Gretzky and Messier and and and, and everybody else with, with Edmonton, and of course the Oil- I mean the the Islanders. You know, in the early '80s with their yep. dynasty. You know, so I mean it was just a great era all around in sports for that time. And Tony McKegney, you know, he was he was a lo- he played a long time in the NHL. He did. He did. And by the way, we got to find that DeLorean time machine. That's it. Yes, we got to find. It. Yeah. <laughs> so you and I both got to find it. That's right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> So, uh, Tony, he had uh, 912 games played in the league, so he was in the league for a long time, like you said. Had a total of 320 goals, 319 assists for 639 points. Uh, His best season was with the uh, St. Louis Blues in 1987-88. He had 40 goals to go with 38 assists and 78 points. Um, You know the thing with Tony McKegney was he was just one of those guys who got the job done, right? He wasn't flashy, you know, especially in a league full of superstars. Day in and day out, he went out and he got his job done, scored a lot of goals, scored goals when his team needed him, was a timely goal scorer. So, and obviously, like I said, in that 87-88 season, he lit the lamp quite a bit. So, uh, I, but I did want to mention Tony because, like I said, I just, just always felt that he was one of those really, really underrated players that really just never got the due he deserved. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you, you said he was drafted by the, uh, by the Sabres in 1979 and played for a lot of different teams, but he, he hung on in the league, which you, which basically you're supposed to, you may be a journeyman, but you hung on 
in the yeah. league for a long, long time. And he did, he definitely got the job done from looking at doing research on him. Um, he definitely got the job done, as you said. Exactly. And another one I want to mention now, he wasn't, you know, he only had like four seasons in the NHL, but always one of my personal favorites because where I grew, I grew up just east of Utica, New York. And back then, back in the 80s, we had the Utica Devils, who okay. were the AHL Farm Club of the New Jersey Devils. And Claude Vilgrain was the man when he was in Utica. I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, in his, He had four seasons with the Devils, Utica Devils as well. 1989-90, uh, he had 37 goals, 52 assists for 89 points in Utica. And I'll tell you something, Dana, I have to mention because he was one of the greatest guys ever. Anytime I ever asked him for an autograph, not a problem. Always there for the fans, always like talking to the fans, and just a great guy overall. It just seemed like to me just hockey players in general seem to be a little bit more personable than some other sports may, yeah. may present themselves because they start off, you know, like baseball. They are in the minors and stuff like that. In your case, it was it's junior hockey. Uh, and they get to, they, they, they get to know the fans. I mean, they play in a lot of small arenas and a lot of small towns and all across Canada and Northern part of the United States. And they get to know the fans. And I think that that goes a long way into whenever they go into the NHL, they become more personable. They become more approachable, I guess, than, uh, than in other sports. At least that's what I find. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot to that, Dana. And you know, it's, it's, it's one of the nice things about hockey, right? So still got a lot of like a, a grassroots feel to it. Whereas, yeah. you know, I mean, and listen, that's not, not you know that's not knocking the other sports because I mean, they, listen, there's tremendous athletes in all all sports. Absolutely, and you're right. And Absolutely. there's you know tremendous ambassadors for their games as well. It's just like you see, it, like you said, it just seems that at, at, at hockey, it seems like it's more widespread. I guess be the best way to put it. All right, okay. And uh, who's the mother that you want to you want to? All right. So let's let's switch over to the defenseman. So okay. first of all, I'm going to go with another personal favorite of mine. Uh, Dustin Bufflin, big buff. Yes, right. He was, he played, I, I know this one because he played for the Atlanta Thrashers, you know, when the Thrashers were here for that cup of coffee here in Atlanta. So, That's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, he was a big star here in Atlanta, you know, because he was, he was with the Thrashers when, you know, and when actually I first moved to Atlanta, he was the major star for the Thrashers when I first moved here. And that's when you thought of the Thrashers, that's the first person you thought of with big Dustin Bufflin. And that was a big dude. Yes, it was. He was huge. <laughs> and when he went to the Thrashers, he was just coming off winning the Stanley Cup in 2010 with the Chicago Blackhawks. And, and I'll tell you, he was a big part of that win. He yeah. really was. Just a physical monster, right? Nobody, nobody wanted to go into the boards against Big Buff. I mean, I don't care who you are, right? I don't think Hulk Hogan would want to go into the boards against Big Buff. Not a chance, right? Uh, 869 games played in his career, 177 goals, 348 assists for 525 points, which, like I said, is a great line for a defenseman. And he also had almost 1,100 penalty minutes in his career. So I remember him getting into a, a few scrapes along the through in the years. Just a couple in Atlanta. I remember that. <laughs> well, you always, you know what, you're always going to have that one tough guy that thinks they can make a name by, for themselves by going after Dustin Bufflin. And then they found out and their name was Mud after they were, you know. <laughs> Right. So absolutely. But yeah, he was he was I remember when when I first moved here and I started seeing some excuse me, some Thrashers games on television here and he, they would 
they would show him and I'm like, Well, that's a big guy, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I tell you. But he was you so skilled for for a big guy. He was very skilled on the ice with the puck. Though he was a defenseman, he was still pretty good at, at puck and you know, handling with handling the stick. Tremendously nimble on his skates for such a big guy. Yeah. You know, usually when you have, you know, players that big, they're they're kind of lumbering. But yeah. not Bufflin. You know, he he had that, that gazelle like speed to him as well, which made him doubly scary, right? Because right. if he got a beat on you, oh my goodness. You know? <laughs> but you know, it's a real shame with him that you know injuries kind of cut his career short. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. He, well, he was he was often on the injured list here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was his knee that finally just kind of gave out on him, which was a real shame because I would have loved to have seen him play a few more years. Right. Okay. So and, who else you got, man? And of course, on defense, we cannot talk about this topic without talking about PK Subban. That's right, and, and and I was a big, I still am a big PK Subban fan, you know, even to this day. Absolutely, you know, PK, awesome on the ice, awesome off the ice, just a tremendous character all the way around. Uh, you know that he actually before he was he made his uh his name in Montreal, for yeah, the Canadians, right. And he, he got traded, and right before he got traded, he donated, oh, my goodness, I think it was like a million or $2 million to the children's hospital there. Just wow. yeah, on his way out the door. That's the, That was the incredible part, right? I mean, he was leaving town. He didn't need to do that. But, no, right. Know, exactly. Yeah, he goes, I'm doing this. Um, but anyways, for his career, he, had, uh, he played 834 games. Uh, he had 115 goals, 352 assists for 400. 167 points, which, like I said, for a defenseman is a tremendous stat line. That's a lot. That's some big numbers for a defenseman. You're right. It sure is. Uh, His best season was in uh, 2014-15 when he had 15 goals, 45 assists for 60 points. Uh, He was a three-time All-Star. He was a Norris Trophy winner in 2012-13. Norris Trophy goes to the best defenseman in the league. So, obviously, a tremendous career for P.K. Subban. And, uh, you know, he's on uh, ESPN now. Yes. He's all. Awesome. He's just such a character, such a fun guy to listen to. And very knowledgeable. Very, very knowledgeable. Yes. Very yes, knowledgeable. Absolutely. And, and and I would be remiss, okay, if I didn't mention this guy. And I'll, I'll tell you the story, and I think you know where I'm going when I tell you, when I say this story. Me and my, my son, my son at the time must have been, oh gosh, must have been 10, 11, 12 years old, somewhere around that time. And we were watching the NHL All-Star Game. And we were watching, and it got to the award ceremony, and it said, congratulations to Wayne Simmons, the hockey, you know, NHL All-Star. And my son looked at me and said, wait, he's black. Like, yes, there are black hockey players yes. in the NHL. He's like, and he's an All-Star? Like, yes, obviously he must be good if he's an All-Star. So tell me about Mr. Wayne Simmons. I'm glad you mentioned him because actually I had him over on the other side of my page when I was going to, I put somehow I put his name on the back of the page without the forward. So <laughs> Wayne Simmons, incredible. Again, prototypical power forward. The guy could just run through anybody, right? And he had a tremendous scoring touch. So he was actually a draft pick of the LA Kings and <laughs> the LA Kings traded him along with Braden Shen to the Philadelphia Flyers in 2012 for Mike Richards. Um, you know, it worked out for both teams richards thrived a little bit for a while for a little while in la when they won the cups but then you know whatever happened to him happened to him uh but wayne simmons career took off when he got to philadelphia reason being was he actually got to get some playing time because the los angeles lineup and the wing at that time was kind of crowded right there was a lot of guys there 
They needed mm-hmm. to move some pieces. Uh, opportunity to knock for Wayne Simmons, and Wayne Simmons drove right through the door. Um, you, your son's right. He was an all-star multiple times, actually, with Philly. And, uh, and again, a tremendous tough guy, but he had a tremendous scoring touch, which is exactly what you want in a hockey player. Um, he's actually still in the league. He still plays okay. for Toronto. Okay. So, I mean, when I was, when he was with Philadelphia and he won, and I sat there and watched, watched the highlights of the, cause I caught the last part of it. I didn't see the whole all-star game, but I saw like the last part of it. And I think he scored a goal in the third period, if I'm not mistaken, for that all-star game. And he was just a tremendous, I started looking him up on YouTube and stuff shortly thereafter. And I was just amazed on how skilled he was. And he would position himself like that trip traditional power forward, like you talk about, position himself right in front of the net and just, and his wrist shot was just so, was just so quick and, but so smooth at the same time. So here's the thing like with Wayne Simmons, right? Too players or hockey players are known to be tough. Mm-hmm. Right? That's kind of their, their, their go-to. Wayne Simmons kind of takes that to the next level. And there was a season where he had a cracked pelvis and he played through it. Ooh. Could you imagine that? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't. I can't. I heard just, just thinking about that, let alone playing in the NHL, right? So and you're being knocked against the boards and you're, you know, you're going, you know, you're going, yeah. you know, colliding with different guys and stuff all the time, which is another thing about hockey, which I which just find fascinating is the fact that they can take all of these hits and they never fall. You hit me like that just on just on just in Reebok and I'm hitting the ground, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Uh, thank thank goodness it's uh, you know at least they got the plexiglass now. It's not like way back in the old days, back yeah. in like Willie Reese's day when they had the chicken wire around instead of. Oh yeah, instead yeah, that like, yeah, no way. <laughs> and didn't have any helmets on either. That's a, no, no, you had to be a man to play back then. <laughs> well, a man, or I mean, I don't know, some, some, maybe a screw loose somewhere because I don't know. That's a wow. <laughs> Talk about survival of the fittest. <laughs> now, Scott, before you go, man, I want to first of all thank you for coming on, man. And what are some things that you got going on on your podcast? Oh uh, man, well, th- listen again. Thank you for having me on. I, I really, really appreciate and love coming on and talk to you. Um, with Marty's, you know, we, we took a little bit of a, a break just because um, I got myself wrapped up into another project I wanted to tell you about. Okay. Um, Marty's is coming back. Don't worry about it. It, it will be back. It's just um, I got myself with a 315 Hockey Live now. So like okay. I told you, I live near Utica, New York. So I live in the central New York region, right between Syracuse and Albany. And there's a lot of hockey here that, you know, we decided we're going to start covering. And we have our own website. It's called 315hockey.com. 315 Hockey Live is the only show that is dedicated strictly to the Central New York hockey scene. So oh, wow. you can find us on YouTube under 315 Hockey Live if you want to subscribe, uh, check us out, see what you, you know, hopefully you'll like it. Uh, but this, I, I tell you, we, uh, with this 315hockey.com, we're covering, what is it, 11, no, 13 teams. I'm sorry, 13. So that's taken up a lot of time. <laughs> uh, but like I said, now that the college season is starting to wind down a little bit, the high school hockey season is starting to wind down a little bit, Marty's will be back on the air, and uh, we're going to have some uh, some tremendous things lined up for that as well. So with the 315 hockey, you, you guys cover pretty much all hockey, whether it's high school, college, yep. junior hockey, pro hockey, you know, minor league, all of that, right? I'll tell you what we don't cover is the NHL. 
So <laughs> you, have, you, can, you cover everything right? else. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, we have uh, two AHL teams in our region. Uh, we have the Utica Comets and the Syracuse Crunch. And then we have, all, we have let's see, four Division three programs and one Division – I'm sorry, two Division one programs that we're covering. So, uh, you know, our Division three, we have uh, Utica University, Hamilton College, Morrisville, Oswego State. Uh, and then Division one, we cover Colgate and the Syracuse University women's hockey team as well. So, and not to mention the, all the high school teams that are going on around here. We got the Utica Junior Comets for those juniors I was telling you about earlier. Uh, a lot of hockey going on here. So, again, takes up a lot of time and, and having another full-time job and, of course, having a family. Uh, there's only so many hours in a day, but like I said. Amen, I brother. Telling, amen. Uh, amen. You yeah, know what I mean, right? <laughs> but, you know, I tell you, I was telling Arnie, I said, don't worry. I said, Marty's will be back. I just got to I gotta come up for air here for just a second. That's all. But, like I said, you now know. that the uh, – the college season's winding down and all that. Some, some time's going to be freed up. So Marty's will be back. Well, Scott, dude, once again, thank you for coming on. This was a very both fun, entertaining, and I learned a lot from this, uh, from this, from this interview that I did with you tonight, you know, because always, always, whenever I talk to you about hockey, I'm learning something new because once again, Growing up here in the South, living in Atlanta, growing up and growing up in South Louisiana, about 18 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. So there wasn't a lot of hockey played down there. <laughs> I but can imagine that. <laughs> you know, even though we did have an age, an ECHL team that had the scoring, had, had the, uh, the Louisiana ice skaters, we had them for a few years. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Um, that the Louisiana ice skater from the East Coast Hockey League. Yep. Um, they had the, I think they had the attendance record one year in the mid nineties. They had the the, the the attendance record for the ECHL. Yeah, you know, I have actually I have heard of them, and you know, it, it's funny that sometimes you know, like with hockey, you don't think it's going to work in the spot, and it does. Yeah. Mainly because it's different; nobody's seen it. Heard that's that's the know? reason why it was so popular in Louisiana. It was just so different and and also entertaining, and everybody went to the went to the game to see the fights. But yeah. <laughs> but once hey, again, whatever works, Scott, bring them in, right? So. Hey, hey. it's money's money. That's right. But thank you, but Scott, once again, my man, thank you for coming on. I really, really appreciate having this conversation with you. And once again, I learned a lot every time I talk to you, man. I learned, I learned a lot from you. You know, once again, let me introduce you, Scott Kinville, the host of the Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast, and also part of the 315hockey.com, and got, he got a whole lot of stuff coming on. It's like he said, the show's coming back. Just stay tuned. Scott, thank you for coming on, my man. Thank you so well, much. Dana, thank you so much. I appreciate it, and let's do this again sometime. Oh, you got it. You got it. Invite me. Hey, I'm, if, whenever you need me, you know I'm there. But thank you so much for coming on. All right, buddy. Thank you. Have a good one. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com.
Hello and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we focus on sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there that you can follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And right now it is time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our weekly top five where we count down the five biggest historic moments in the world of sports history that are celebrating anniversaries and is being brought to you by Home Field Apparel. The college basketball season is in full swing and heading into its stretch run and March Madness is just around the corner and the best way to show off your school spirit and fandom is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Home Field Apparel. They have a wide range of styles for your favorite team with what I call old school logos. Not, to, not only to make you stand out in the crowd, but also to show that you are a true fan. Now they have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more schools and more styles every day. And on the website, you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen to get 20% off of your next purchase. So give Homefield Apparel a try as you watch your team in the tournament and possibly pull off that major upset. That's Homefield Apparel, where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful premium apparel, a must-have for the upcoming tournament. Once again, Homefield Apparel, where they're as fond of saying, wear one for the team. So, this episode's top five will highlight the major historical moments in sports that took place between the dates of February 19th through February 25th. And so, without further delay, here we go. Number five. The Dodgers signed Lease to play at Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. On February 21, 1958, the newly relocated Los Angeles Dodgers signed in the beginning a two-year lease to play at the spacious yet oddly dimensioned Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. This would be the Dodgers' temporary home until their new stadium, which was under construction at Chavez Ravine, was ready. In the meantime, the Dodgers would play at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, which up to that time hosted the Olympics and was the home field for the LA Rams, the USC Trojans, and the UCLA Bruins football teams. As I had mentioned, the odd dimensions of the Coliseum made it unique to say the least because of its configuration of an Olympic track and field stadium and football arena, the left field corner was only 251 feet from home plate, which extended out to 320 in left center. Also, there was a 42 high foot fence or net erected just in front of the left field seat, so left field home runs wouldn't come so cheaply. Now, while the left field line was just 251 feet from home, straightaway center was 425 feet from the plate, and the right field corner was 300 feet from home. The Dodgers had to wait 52 years to bring Brooklyn the World Series Championship, yet baseball fans in Southern California had to wait less than two years as the Dodgers defeated the White Sox in the 1959 series. In April of 1962, the Dodgers would finally move into their new home, Dodger Stadium. Number 4. Pete Maravich scored 68 points versus the Knicks in the Superdome. On February 25, 1977, in the Louisiana Superdome, the then New Orleans Jazz was facing the New York Knicks. The game was not a sellout, but how could it be playing in the absurdly spacious Superdome? However, if you were walking the streets of New Orleans and asked any fan of a certain age where they were the night Pistol lit it up for 68 points against the Knicks, many of them said they were there. If all the people said that they were there, really there, 
It would have been the largest crowd in NBA history, yet it wasn't. Pete Maravich in Louisiana is still, to this day, regarded as a basketball god. The home arena of the LSU Tigers men and women's basketball teams is actually named after him. The P. Maravich Assembly Center, or as we Louisianians call it, the PMAC. Yet on this February night in 1977, the Jazz, 26-33 on the season, was just in its third year of existence and their second season playing in the Superdome. Yet it was less than a couple of months since future Hall of Famer Elgin Baylor took over as head coach, replacing Butch Von Bredikoff. That night, New Orleans faced the Knicks, who came in with an equally stellar record of 27-33, which was led by future Hall of Famers Earl Monroe and Bob McAdoo. As it turned out, the pistol poured it on as, he, as if he was back in Baton Rouge. Maravich went 26-43 of 43 from the field and was 16-19 of 19 from the charity stripe. As the Jazz won 124-107, as Maravich went for a career-high 68 points. Still a Jazz team record, and he did all of this without a three-point line. Quote, it was pretty fun to watch, said Paul Griffin, who was a rookie for the Jazz in 1977. He had so much scoring prowess that it was not unheard of for him to do something like that, but it was still a feat, especially with no three-point line. He won the scoring title that year, averaging 31.1 points per game, so we were used, so we were used to it. But that night, he was just feeling it, unquote. Feeling it indeed. Number three, the United States hockey team defeats Finland to win the gold medal. On February 21st, 24th, 1980, just two days after the quote-unquote miracle on ice, Team USA, trying to avoid a letdown, faced the powerful national hockey team from Finland for the gold medal. After falling behind in the first two periods, Team USA rallied with three goals in the third to defeat Finland 4-2 in America's first hockey gold medal since the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California. After falling behind 1-0 in the opening period, Steve Kristoff scored on his steal to tie the score 1-1 four minutes into the second period. Later, Finland would respond two minutes later on a power play to take, retake the lead 2-1 heading into the final period. In the third, Team USA would not be denied, especially playing at home at Lake Placid, New York, riding the emotion of two nights before after, being, after beating the Soviet Union, Team USA tied it when Phil Frischada scored with three minutes in. Later in the period, Rob McClanahan would score to take the lead six minutes into the third. With the lead, momentum, and a raucous pro-American crowd on hand, Mark Johnson put the game away with a goal off of a rebound to give Team USA a well-deserved win that capped off a memorable performance. More about that later on in the top five. Number two, Cassius Clay upset Sonny Liston for the heavyweight title. On February 25, 1964, at the Miami Beach Convention Center, Cassius Clay, a young heavyweight contender from Louisville, Kentucky, was, faced to, was set to face what many fight fans and sports writers considered one of the most terrifying boxers ever to step into the ring, Sonny Liston. Las Vegas Ozmakers had listed Clay as an 8-1 underdog to Liston who had destroyed Floyd Patterson to gain the title in September of 1962. Heading into the Clay fight, Liston who had, who had defeated 8 of the top 10 heavyweight contenders at the time and he beat 7 of them by knockout. This meant little to anything to Clay, who was looking forward to whipping the bear in Miami and becoming the youngest heavyweight champion ever. 
As the fight began, Clay used his agility and lightning fast jabs to keep Liston off balance. Clay gained confidence through the early round and actually cut Liston under his eye in the third. For the first time in Liston's career, he had been cut. However, the tide of the fight would turn in the fourth as Clay began to complain about his eyes burning and he couldn't see. That gave Liston a momentary opening which the champion could not exploit. When his eyes cleared, Clay began to land combinations that gave him the edge over Liston. By the end of the sixth, Clay was in total control of the fight. At the beginning of the seventh, in the beginning of the seventh, Liston never came out of the corner, and referee Barney Felix declared, uh, declared Clay the winner. In a stunning upset, Clay defeated Liston, and Liston was the first heavyweight champion since Jess Willard in 1919 to retire on his stool during a heavyweight fight. Two days later, Clay had announced that he was a member of the Nation of Islam and officially changed his name to Muhammad Ali. He will go on to become the first heavyweight fighter in history to win the belt three different times. And the number one moment in sports history that happened this week, the U.S. Olympic hockey team defeats the Soviet Union at Lake Placid. Now there are a few instances in sports where it, could, where it transcends from being just a sporting event to a cultural iconic moment that changed the perception of an entire country upon the world stage both in sports as well as politics. Now this exact thing happened on February 22, 1980 at the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. Team USA had reached the medal round of the Olympic hockey tournament and their opponents was the mighty Soviet hockey team who had won the last four gold medals in the Olympic competition. Team USA, according to the experts, had absolutely no chance. On February 9, 1980, Team USA played the Soviet Union in an exhibition kind of an Olympic warm-up at Madison Square Garden in New York. Team USA simply was destroyed by the Soviets 10-3 leading up to the Lake Placid Games. Yet Team USA behind Captain Michael Ruzioni pulled off possibly the greatest upset in hockey history, beating the Soviet Union 4-3. A lot of people think that this was the gold medal game. However, it was just the semifinals. After this win, they still had to play Finland for the gold medal a couple of nights later, as we talked about earlier. But in this game, the Soviets went up to an early 1-0 lead, but Team USA countered by a goal with, by Bill Buzz Snyder to tie the game at 1. Later in the first period, the Soviets would score again. But right before the period ended, Mark Johnson would score off of a rebound to tie the game at two, heading into the first intermission. In the second, the Soviets would score to recapture the lead 3-2, and it would stay that way until the third and final period. In the third, Dave Silk would tie the game 3-3 with two minutes into the third period. Then just two minutes later, Mike Ruzioni would score to give the Americans the lead 4-3. From that point on, it was the American defense and goaltender Jim Craig that would keep the Soviets out of the net as the clock ticked down to zero. The crowd on hand felt that they were witnessing history as Al Michaels described the final seconds for ABC.
Team USA pulled off the biggest upset in Olympic hockey history known forever as the Miracle on Ice, a game that became a rallying cry for an entire nation throughout the entire rest of the decade of the 1980s. And that will do it for this week's edition of the Home Field Apparel Top 5. And coming up next, we're going to send a solemn shout out to a man that I learned as much about baseball as any, in, any little league coach and by my grandfather combined through the magic of television. People have mixed feelings about him, but to me and other people of my generation, Tim McCarver was more than just a baseball analyst that was a former player. He was a baseball teacher. That's right after this short break. We at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the sportshistorynetwork.com sponsors page, you'll find Row 1, Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. All of these offer great discounts, specifically at Row 1, you can save 15% at the Row 1 Gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 Gallery includes over 5,200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes of wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 Shop also has thousands of more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts and long sleeve shirts, phone cases and mugs, blankets and pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. With Royal Retros, they're the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from defunct leagues and other teams in those leagues. From Play Classic Games, it's sports simulation board games. Just use the code SHN for 10% off your first order. From Thrive Fantasy, it's a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to 100 bucks. And with Mega Seats, they're tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So check them out on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com sponsors page. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash sponsors. The soundtrack is provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello, welcome back to the program. And to conclude the show, we're going to send a shout out to a historical event or historical person within the vast world of sports. And today, we're going to send a solemn shout out to Tim McCarver former Major League Baseball catcher and later television baseball analyst. Now, I started watching baseball religiously in the late 1980s, and I heard a former base and I heard former baseball players that I really didn't know too much about being color analysts for the different networks. There was the likes of Joe Garrett, Yola, Ralph Kiner, Jim Cotton, Joe Morgan, 
just to name a few. Yet there was this other guy that had a southern accent that for some reason I was immediately drawn to. And that person was Tim McCarver. McCarver was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1941. And for most of his career, McCarver played catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals and the Philadelphia Phillies. But he also had stops with the Montreal Expos and the Boston Red Sox. Now, during his playing career, he is, of course, most remembered for being the battery mate of Hall of Fame pitcher Bob Gibson. And he was the catcher for Gibson's 17 strikeout performance in Game 1 of the 1968 World Series against the Detroit Tigers at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. Now, during his playing days, he's also remembered for hitting a 10th inning home Tenth inning, three-run home run in Game 5 of the 1964 Fall Classic against the New York Yankees. He was a member of two World Series championship teams in the 1964 and 1967 Cardinals and was, the, was in a third World Series for the 1968 Cardinals where they lost to the Tigers. McCarver was runner-up to teammate Orlando Cepeda for the 1967 MVP award when he led all National League catchers with a 295 batting average and led the league in assists and fielding percentage for catchers. After his retirement, McCarver went into broadcasting, calling a record 23 World Series and 20 All-Star games. His unmistakable Southern accent gave any game that he broadcast an added sense of warmth and timelessness that was at the heart of the very game of baseball. His vast knowledge of the game, especially with him, especially with him being a former catcher, gave the viewer a sense that he knew what was going to happen actually before it happened. The case in point came in Game 7 of the 2001 World Series when he pointed out that Yankees were playing shallow infield and Yankee reliever Mariano Rivera tended to give up shallow hits to the outfield. Sure enough, Luis Gonzalez promptly slapped the hit into shallow center field to give the Diamondbacks their first and only World Series championship. Tim McCarver, one of baseball's great ambassadors. He definitely will be missed, especially by this sports fan. And that will do it for this edition of Historically Speaking Sports. Thanks for listening. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you could get new episodes whenever they're released. And check us out on Twitter at HistoricallySP2, where you can get your daily dose of sports history. And you could also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Also like to thank Scott Kinville for coming in and joining us for this episode. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. Tell your family, tell your neighbor, tell a friend, even tell a passerby on the street about us and get them to subscribe. I would really, really appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Dana Augusta, your host saying so long. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. 
Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.